The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, verses 17, 18, and 19. Verses 17, 18, and 19 in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over into lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. I want particularly this morning to deal with the 17th verse. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Now here, you will recall, we begin a detailed consideration of this great section of this epistle, which starting here at this 17th verse of this fourth chapter goes right on to the very end of the epistle. The apostle is now... Uh, concerned that these people uh, should know how in practice and in detail to manifest the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and so demonstrate before the world and before the angels in heaven the manifold wisdom of God as being members of the Christian church. Now we analyzed the whole section in detail last Sunday morning and you remember that uh, we said that here, in this subsection, beginning at this 17th verse of the fourth chapter, and uh, going on right uh, until the 24th verse of this particular section, the apostle gives us the kind of theological or doctrinal basis for our conduct. He's got a whole series of them. As you remember, he divides it up into various sections. Now, the particular matter here is this, that we are always to live and to conduct ourselves as remembering that as Christians, we are entirely new men and women. That regeneration is the profoundest change in the world. And that, therefore, we must always keep that in the forefront of our minds. A Christian is not just a man who's decided to be a little bit more moral than he was, or who's decided to join a church, or who's decided this or that, whatever it may be. No, no, what makes a man a Christian is that he has been born again. He's been given a new nature. He's a new creation. He's altogether different from what he was before. Now, that's the first principle which the apostle takes up in this section which goes on to the end of the epistle. And here he is now beginning to apply that. Here's the first thing he says, remember that about yourselves. And as you remember that, well, you will find that certain things are quite unthinkable, they're impossible. You'll never look at them again because you see now so clearly that you have been separated from all that once and forever. Now then, that's what he's going to say in this particular section that we are looking at together. But now let's look at it 
in the exact words which the apostle himself uses. Let's consider his way of stating that. And uh, we find that he does so in this manner. He starts off by addressing them in a most solemn manner. He wants to call attention to the thing. It's of vital importance. So he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. He isn't content with saying, This I say therefore. That would be strong, but he adds to that. This I say therefore and testify. Now what does he mean by this testify? Well, it really means solemnly to enjoin. It is, as it were, that he's invoking a witness. Uh, when you give a testimony, you're bearing witness. You're witnessing to something. A witness is put into the box and he testifies. That's it. And that's exactly what the apostle is saying. Uh, he is anxious that they shouldn't think for a moment that this is just his own personal opinion because there were probably people then, uh, indeed there were people then as there are now, they say, but it's only Paul's opinion that. That's what Paul thinks. Don't you say that, says the apostle. This isn't just uh, a personal foible of mine. This isn't just uh, something that I, because I happen to have a narrow mind, am saying or are thinking. It isn't because I was a Pharisee and trained in the law. No, no, it isn't merely I whom speaking this. I say, therefore, and testify. In the Lord. Now, he means by that in the Lord, not so much that he is invoking the Lord as his witness. People sometimes do that. You get that even in the scripture. As God is my witness, they say. Or in the presence of God. Now, it doesn't mean exactly that that idea is probably here. But surely what he means is this. That he is uh, testifying to this as one who is in the Lord. He is one who is in communion with the Lord. He is delivering, therefore, what is a divinely authenticated commission. He is one who is uh, daring to say that he is speaking as one who has access to the mind of the Lord. Now, you notice, you remember how in his uh, first um, epistle to the Corinthians in the seventh chapter, he draws that kind of distinction. Uh, he says at a given point, now this is what I think. I, I haven't the mind of the Lord here. That was Paul's opinion. And when it is Paul's opinion, he tells us that it is his opinion. Uh, but when, it, when he doesn't say that, he is speaking in the Lord. In other words, he is speaking again with the full authority of an apostle. Not only was the great and glorious doctrine revealed to him, as he tells us in the third chapter, but this was also revealed to him. These details about conduct have the same apostolic authority, the same divine authority, therefore, as have his expositions of the doctrines. And he is speaking again as one who has been clothed with this unique authority that belonged to the apostles. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He has given these apostles to the church. 
And when they spoke and they taught, they spoke with a unique authority. Their words were divinely inspired. They have the authority of God. I testify, he says, in the Lord. Very well. What is he testifying to? What is he saying? What is this injunction which he puts to them in such a solemn manner, having arrested their attention and having made them realize that they're listening to the word of the living God? Well, here it is. You notice that uh, he puts what he's got to say, first of all, negatively. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not. The negative. We are so busy today, aren't we, that we don't like negatives. We haven't really got time for negative. We want the positive truth. And we don't like criticisms of that which is wrong. We must always be positive. My dear friend, I do hope you're seeing the utter folly of such idle, vacant talk. Here is the divine authority speaking through the apostle. And the first thing we have is negative, not. We've got to realize first and foremost what we must not be. It is not enough to tell men and women here in this world, in a world like this and in the flesh, simply what they are to do. We all know perfectly well how inadequate that is. We must be taught first and foremost what we are not to be. This idea that you've just held the ideal before men and they'll at once conform to it has been so completely disproved by the history of the human race that it's almost incredible that anybody should still believe that. No, no. We are told, first of all, what we must not do. Well, what is that? Well, he says we must uh, not walk as uh, the other Gentiles do. But look, look at the words, how wonderful they are. Every word really is conveying some important meaning to us. Take the word walk, for instance. That you henceforth walk, not as the other Gentiles walk. What does this mean? Well, that means the whole life and conversation. Often in the authorized version, you'll find the word translated as conversation. Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, says this same Paul to the Philippians. He says, our conversation is in heaven. It means the whole life, the general tenor of the life, and at the same time, the life in detail. The walk means, as used in scripture, the whole of the man's life, inward and outward. Now we must remember that. Walk is not confined to the outward. It involves the inward. Now that's a very important point which I shall be coming uh, to stress in a moment. Because according to this whole argument, what determines the outward is the inward. A man is as he thinks. And a man walks as he thinks. And his walk tells you what he is thinking. His walk is an expression of his philosophy. Very well then, here is something he tells us about the whole of our life. And uh, what he tells us is that henceforth, now there's a significant word, it means no longer. And here you see at once he's introducing us to his doctrine. Now he says, I'm telling you and uh, testifying in the Lord 
that you no longer must walk as the Gentiles do. You see the implication, don't you? You once did walk like that. But you're no longer walking like that. Why? Well, because of this tremendous change that has taken place in you. So the very word henceforth, if you like, contains the whole of the gospel. Henceforth tells us this. There's the past. That is what they once were. There's the unregenerate life. Henceforth, something's happened. Now then, the future, it's going to be altogether different. And immediately, you see, we are told what a profound change the regeneration produces. How this Christian man is indeed a new man. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Well, then, then take his other phrase, that ye henceforth walk, not, I read here in the authorized, not as other Gentiles walk. Now, you'll find in the revised versions, and the parallel to that, that they haven't got the word other, that ye no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Well, that's purely a matter of documents, and it seems that the oldest and the most authoritative documents haven't got the other. It doesn't make the slightest difference, really, because in any case, what he's saying is this. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. And you were, you are Gentiles, and you once did walk like that. So it seems to me that the authorized translators have certainly caught the point and they've caught the spirit. What he's really saying is this, look here, you are Gentile Christians, you as Christians, you don't any longer walk as the other Gentiles walk. The Gentiles now can be divided into two groups. The Gentiles who have become Christians, the Gentiles who have remained where they were, the other Gentiles, the non-Christian Gentiles. So if you take it as the Gentiles in general or the other Gentiles, it's referring to exactly the same thing. But the word other does again help to bring out this tremendous change that has taken place. In other words, he is by every word that he's using, enforcing upon the minds of these Ephesian Christians that they're no longer what they once were. And this is the place where they rise up and praise God and sing their anthems. Whereas I was once blind, now I see, henceforth, no longer. Thank God for a gospel that enables us to speak like that that we can say no longer, henceforth, the new beginning, the new start, the new life. Very well then, what are we to do no longer? What are we to refrain from? Well, he tells us this. He gives us an account of how the Gentiles, the other Gentiles, if you like, still walk. And this is how he puts it. In the vanity of their mind. Now that's a tremendous phrase. This is the phrase that introduces the terrible description that the apostle gives here of the life of the unregenerate. The life of the pagan world at that time. 
It is, I say, a tremendous and a terrible description. You noticed its terms, as I read it just now to you. Now, you cannot read this uh, description without being reminded immediately of what he said at the beginning of the second chapter. There, you remember, he puts it like this. You were he quickened, who were, were, once upon a time, before the gospel came to you, you were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past, you see, goes on repeating it, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby nature the children of wrath, even as others. Is he then just repeating himself? Well, no, he is not. There is a sense, of course, in which he is, but there is a marked difference, one striking point of difference between what he says there at the beginning of the second chapter and what he says here. And the difference is this. There in the second chapter, he is giving an objective description of this life of the unregenerate Gentiles, the life of the pagan world. Here he gives an inward analysis of it, if you like, a psychological analysis of it. Chapter 2, general description. Here, dissection, analysis, exposure, showing us the source and the fount of it all in a most terrifying manner. There is, I take it, no more profound analysis of the unregenerate life anywhere than that which we find here. And as I say that, I have in my mind that other tremendous passage in the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 and going on to the end of the chapter. There's another one. There's another of these masterly, profound analyses of the life and outlook of that pagan world. Read it. Read every one of these passages. There's another one in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9. They're all full of importance and of significance. That 17th of Acts, which we read. There's another in the 14th of Acts. Here are the most masterly descriptions of life without Christ that can ever be encountered. And here it is really all just in a phrase, in the vanity of their mind. Now I'm uh, pausing with this and emphasizing this. Not because it's uh, just a matter of uh, theoretical or academic interest. Not because uh, I'm interested in the psychology of human nature and in the psychology of behavior. They're very fascinating themes, I quite agree. But I'm calling your attention to it not because I'm animated by some theoretical interest like that, still less by some kind of antiquarian interest in going back and reading about those ancient times. It's very fascinating, isn't it? Nothing more fascinating. Anthropology, it's called. And you go back and you study conduct and behavior, civilizations and what's happened to them. Well, from the purely intellectual standpoint, there is nothing more fascinating and more thrilling. But my dear friends, I'm not uh, pausing with this this morning 
because I'm animated by any such motives nor ideas. I'll tell you why I'm so urgent about this and why I'm holding your attention to it. Because it seems to me that here we have the perfect description and analysis and explanation of what is increasingly becoming true of life in this modern world in which you and I are living. The principles which the Apostle teaches here are always true. And uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that our world is becoming more and more what it is for the reason given here. And because of the failure of modern men to realize the truth of this. So as we look at all this this morning, we are not simply going to look at pagan society in Ephesus nearly 2,000 years ago. We are going to be looking at London today, Paris, New York, any one of them. Here it is. Here's modern life. Here's the modern world. You see, these things don't change. They're eternal principles. And therefore I say, if we really are concerned about the life of society and about the world, the first thing we have to do is to understand this teaching. Those of us who are evangelical are constantly being charged with not being practical. Ah, oh, they say, there you are. You spend your time in discussing the scriptures and talking to one another and the great world outside. You do nothing about it. Well, what I'm here to say is this. You can do nothing about it until you begin to understand this. It is this alone that enables one to do anything about it. And all organizations that don't start from this not only are failing and have failed, but must inevitably fail. That is the tragedy about purely moral societies. They've been going now, some of them, for nearly a hundred years. And yet, in spite of all their activities, the position goes down from bad to worse. Why? Well, they've forgotten these principles. Here you see the apostle shows us the origin of that evil kind of life that he describes. Before he describes the life in detail, he shows us why it ever is that anybody should live such a life. Or if you like it in other language, it's this. What the Apostle is asserting here is that you cannot have morality without godliness. Now there in a phrase, it seems to me, I have indicated the whole trouble in the last 50 years in particular. There are good people in the land who are concerned about morality. They're very concerned about morality. Yes, but they're not concerned about godliness. You simply cannot have godliness, morality finally, without godliness. And the last 50 years has proved that to the very hilt. Now, going back a hundred years and more, the great emphasis was upon the godliness. And the morality came out of the godliness. But then a generation came which said, Ah, oh, well, the morality is very good and it's very essential for the country. But of course, we don't want this godliness any longer. We no longer believe in the supernatural. We don't believe in miracles. We don't believe that Christ is the Son of God. He was a great moral teacher. And of course, we must shed all this godly part of it. And they did so. They thought they could preserve their morality without the godliness. But you see what's happened. 
Though you've got education and everything you can provide, if there isn't godliness at the back of it, your morality will collapse. And the modern world is just an illustration of that. In other words, the apostle is here concerned not simply and not only with the fact that the Gentiles lived in a given way. He is much more concerned with the reason why they lived like that. And that, I say, is still the position with us. All thinking, good, decent people must be alarmed at what's happening in this country. There's a slow but steady decline in morals. It must be evident to all. And I say all decent living people are tremendously concerned about that. But here, I say, is the great and the big question. Why is this happening? What can be done about it? Now, the most futile and foolish thing of all is just to denounce it. That leads nowhere. That's the simple and the easy thing to do, just as you see it meeting you in the streets and in your newspapers just to feel a sense of disgust, to turn away and say, how horrible, how terrible. That's not going to help anybody, obviously. No, no, the business of the gospel is not simply to denounce. It isn't simply to restrain. The business of the gospel is to deal with the situation in the only way in which it can be dealt with radically, and that is to preach this gospel of regeneration, this power of God unto salvation that can deal even with that, and something even worse than that. That's the whole story of the New Testament. Very well, then, there, I say, is our overriding reason for pausing with this and going into it so carefully. This is the only hope for society. And let men do what they will. Multiply their educational and moral and social organizations. They won't touch it. You can have your teetotal organizations, your morality crusades and your morality councils and a thousand other things and you won't touch the situation. This kind of thing is in the heart of men. And it's only a message that can deal with the heart of men that is adequate to meet the problem. Very well then, what does he say about it? Well, here it is. It, he divides it up into three sections. Let's, let's look at it. In verse 17, he makes a general statement as to the condition. There it is, the vanity of their minds. In verse 18, he tells us the cause of that, the cause of the vanity. In verse 19, he gives us the consequences of the vanity. Now, this morning, we can only look at the general state and condition as he describes it. Here it is, that ye no longer walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. What does he mean by this? Well, as I say, it's a very profound statement. What does he mean by the mind? It's important we should be clear about this. Because our first instinct would be, obviously, to regard it as a description of the intellect. But he doesn't mean intellect only. I'll give you a very good reason for that. He refers to the intellect in the next verse, the 18th verse, where he talks about the understanding being darkened. So when he says mind here, 
He isn't only thinking of the intellect and the understanding. No, mind here means something much bigger. It means the mind with its emotional capabilities included. It means thought, will, and susceptibilities. It means reason, understanding, conscience, affections. Indeed, it means the whole soul of man. Now, in many other places, I mustn't detain you with this, but in many other places in the scripture, the, the term mind is used in that sense as descriptive of the whole soul of man. Intellect, affections, conscience, will, the entire personality. If you like, we can put it like this. It means their entire outlook upon life, their whole reaction to life, and their way, therefore, of living life. The mind. The total personality. Now then, what he says about them is this. That these other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. What's he mean by vanity? Well, let me give you some alternative terms. Here's what it really means. Emptiness. Emptiness. The Revised Standard Version's got a good word. It says, in the futility of their mind. Utterly empty, absolutely futile. Indeed, the word the Apostle actually used in its origin means this. It means that which doesn't lead to the goal. It means, therefore, something which is aimless, pointless, lacking direction. It doesn't bring you to any goal. And, it, of course, it leads in the end to utter futility. The whole thing is utterly and absolutely empty. And that is his description in general of the life of the pagan Gentile world. He says it's living an empty, a futile, a vain life which leads to nothing at all. Oh, what a description of the modern world. What a description of what so many regard as real life today. The life of London, especially in its highest circles. Life, here it is, they say. The apostle says it's empty, futile, aimless, utterly vain. Is he right? Well, we can certainly justify his description of that ancient world. Let me try and show it to you and apply it to the life of today and you'll see that it's equally true. It's a perfect description of the modern life apart from Christ. It's a life that leads nowhere. It never gives any real satisfaction. Look at that ancient world. Oh, but you say, what about the great philosophers? All right, we'll accept that. There was that life, and it's a life, as you see, of darkness, an occasional flash. But does the flash lead to anything? Did the flash lead to anything? There were these great philosophers, and they talked in a very learned manner about truth and goodness and beauty. They were their favorite themes. The search for truth, the search for goodness, the search for beauty. Goodness, beauty, and truth. Put them in any order which you like. These wonderful flashes. But what did they lead to? 
That's the question the apostle is asking. What is the aim? What is the goal? What is the objective? Did they bring the people anywhere? He says, no. Pointless, futile, aimless. But is he right? Well, let's test it. Where did it bring them in a religious sense? We've seen from that description in Acts 17 that they were very concerned about religion, about the gods and about worship. And they talked a great deal about the first cause and the uncaused cause. They were seeking for God. They put up their temple to the unknown God. They were looking for an explanation in a religious sense. But what, what did it lead to? Well, you read even the secular accounts of those ancient times and you'll find this. They absolutely confirmed the scriptures. A large majority of the people were atheists. They didn't believe in a God at all. The others were pantheists. That is to say, they believed God was in everything. And everything is God. Pantheism. And the others were polytheists. They believed in a multiplicity of gods. Jupiter, Mars, Mercurius, you'll find them mentioned in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And they built their temples to them, as Acts 17 reminded us. Paul says, as I walked around your great city, I came to the conclusion that you're much too religious. Your whole city is cluttered up with temples. Polytheism. Here they are, the great philosophers. These great men searching after God. Where does it all lead to? Futility. They don't know him whom ye ignorantly worship, said Paul to them. Him declare I unto you. In the vanity of their minds, aimless, futile. It doesn't lead to anything in a religious sense in which they were so interested. But what about it more generally, intellectually? Well, the answer is the same. They had no satisfaction whatsoever. They had no real understanding of men and of life and of the purpose of life in this world. They were very interested in history and the problem of history. Uh, this, is the, this was their view of, of it. They said history is a matter of cycles. It just goes round and round in cycles. There's no advance, there's no direction, there's no goal. You seem to be going up. Ah, yes, but you soon find you're going down the other side. You just go round and round in a circuit. That was their view of history. They'd never had this biblical conception of this one great far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. No, no, going round and round in cycles. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 expresses it also perfectly. Vanity of vanities, that which has been shall be. The rivers go into the sea, the sea's never full. Why the well? It's absorbed again by the sun and it goes back to the beginning. Round and round you go. That's history. And then what about death? What was their view of death? These great philosophers, had they any view of death? Well, these were their views of death. To large numbers, death was just the end, and the grave was the last word. Others believed in what was called transmigration of souls, a series of reincarnations. Others held the view that the state of men beyond death was elusive, vague, indefinite, shadowy. Oh, read Greek mythology and you'll see what I mean. There they are, as it were, on those rivers endlessly going about in a kind of gloom and darkness, no light. 
with all their passion still within them and unhappiness. That's their idea of death and of life if there is any beyond death and the grave. What were they like morally? Well, complete failure here also. Horrible perversions. Read again that first chapter of the epistle to the Romans, the second section. And there you'll see an account of life as lived in the sewers and the gutters in a moral sense. All the perversions and the foulness conceivable. That's where they were. Is it surprising that the apostle describes it all as being vain and empty and futile and aimless. And you see, the leading philosophers were often the leaders in the immorality. As some of their greatest philosophers have praised the love of a man for a man as being beyond the love of man for woman. They've justified the perversions philosophically. Go and read them for yourselves. Before you listen to the modern philosophers who say we don't need Christ, that Plato and Socrates and Aristotle are sufficient, go and read them, and you'll find that they justify perversions in that particular way. And the result of all this, of course, was that suicide had increased at an alarming rate and was increasing. So in spite of all the flashes, the brilliant intellects, and all the interest in goodness, beauty, and truth, there was life. Meaningless, vain, empty, futile. It isn't merely the book of Ecclesiastes who says that. It isn't merely Solomon who says that. So many centuries before Christ. Go back again, I say, to the 17th of Acts. Look at the learned people in Athens. Stoics and Epicureans. These men who meet together to discuss these things. Ah, yes, they met together, you remember. Uh, to tell or to hear some new thing. What's the latest What's the latest craze, the latest fashion? Not merely in clothing, but in intellect and in thought and in ideas and in philosophy. Always rushing after the latest and the last. What a confession of futility. What utter emptiness. Just going round and round in circles. Flashy, exciting, brilliant. But in the end, what? Nothing. No understanding of life. No knowledge how to live, no understanding of death, nothing to cheer them beyond death and the grave. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What's the use of anything? That was the life of the ancient pagan world. In the name of God, I ask you, Isn't it a strictly accurate description of life in this modern world without Christ? The television life, the cinema life, the drinking, gambling life, the life of society, high or low. The apparent brilliance, marvel and show, but what is there in it? What is there for your soul? What is there for manhood? What does it tell you about life? What does it lead to? Where are you? It leaves you at the end empty-handed with nothing at all. Vanity in the vanity of their minds. Empty, aimless, futile. In spite of all our sophistication, in spite of the fact that nearly 2,000 years have passed since these words were penned by the great apostle, it's as true today as it has ever been, I 
trust that there's no one in this congregation who is fooled and deluded by the gaudy show of it all. With all this talk about art and its intellectual interests, and I say its sophistication, what is there in it? Look at them. Look at the people, the devotees. What have they? It's vain. It's empty. They have nothing. They talk about art for art's sake. Is that the way to solve the problem? Is that direction? Does that build up the soul? Does that produce morality? Does that hold out a hope for people who have failed and who have gone down? Of course it doesn't. They have nothing themselves. It's all a make-believe. You keep it going. It goes round and round. It's like this satellite. And it can stop at any moment. And the whole civilization collapses as it so often collapsed in previous history. No, no, my friends. Life without Christ is always empty. It's always vain. It takes from you, it takes out of you. And it leaves you at the end a disused husk. It leaves you exhausted with nothing to lean on, nothing to be proud of, and nothing whatsoever to look forward to. Well, what the apostle is saying is this. He says, you are no longer to be controlled and influenced by an outlook and by a mentality like that. You have been born again. Are you looking back with longing eyes to that kind of life? Does the world appeal to you? Is that your conception of living? Out upon the suggestion, he says, it's utterly empty and futile, aimless, pointless. I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you, henceforth, walk not as the other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. Thank God for ever having opened our eyes to that. For the world and all its glittering prizes, yes, says the Apostle John, this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith, it is faith, it is the gospel, that opens one's eyes to the emptiness and vanity and futility of that world and its mind, its life, and its outlook. Thank God that in his infinite grace he has ever caused the beams of his spirit to shine into our hearts and to give us an understanding. Thank God. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.